As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Gilles Moet joins us now. He does come on TV. The chief economist at AXA Investment Managers. He comes to New York too. Gilles, it's great to catch up, sir, as always. There is a view, Gilles, that things are better in Europe. And I'd love a reality check from you. How much better are they relative to what we feared late in the summer? Not much better. I, I don't think things have, have changed materially. I mean, what we what we knew on the energy side, for instance, was that uh, Germany, which is you know, the, the biggest potential victim of uh, the end of, of, of Russian gas supply, that Germany had managed to get its consumption of gas significantly down, actually, uh, in, in the summer, which means that their inventory position is, is better than what we could have feared maybe six months ago. But again, we knew that already at the end of the summer, nothing has changed from, from that side. Um, on the data flow in general, on, on you know, the fact that we are sliding into recession, all the data flow we've had still goes in the same direction. I mean, if you look at uh, the European Commission surveys, if you look at uh, the messages we get for, for the bank lending survey, for instance, it is consistent with a slide into, into recession within the next you know, three to, to, to six months. So it has not really changed. What has changed is, and you, know, you alluded to this, uh, uh, there was this one lower than expected you know, print uh, for inflation in the in the US. Markets scrambles, you know, depricing uh, what it expects on the, uh, on the Fed. Uh, the expected rate differential for the next six months between the ECB and the Fed shrinks. And you know, voila, you've got uh, a, a euro uh, a Rebounding, uh, I would not read much more than that actually into uh, the uh, the rebound of, of of the euro. For me, it's uh, uh, an interest rate differential play. That's it. So, as you walk us through your assessment of the inflation backdrop right now and how you think this bleeds into 2023. Well, um, I know it. Especially uh, two three months ago, it was very unpopular to still use the word transitory uh, because it was a very persistent form of, of transitory. But it's, it's, it's what we were expecting that we would see uh, some deceleration in, in inflation uh, towards the end of 22 and into 2023. The question is um, how quickly we will get closer to the kind of target as uh, uh, central banks are, are pursuing. And that's a different question from the fact that it is probably already starting to, to, to decelerate. Um, so in the US, it's 
definitely uh, a labor market issue. And for now, let's say that the data is ambiguous. Uh, our contention is that we will see a uh, slowdown in, in wages and that will help take core inflation down by the second half of 2023, even if the first month of, of next year is going to be, to be tough. But it's a sort of, you know, uh, uh, traditional, usual macroeconomic behavior. And you've had a very, very tense labor market. Labor market needs to soften. Wages go, go down. Inflation goes down. In Europe, it's much more complicated uh, because you still have a very, very significant share of our inflation, which is completely exogenous, which is completely driven by external factors, uh, the depreciation in, in the euro that we've had until very, very recently, and gas prices, which remain extraordinarily uh, volatile. We also expect a slowdown in inflation next year in Europe based on uh, mechanical behaviors the fact that you know base effects should play in the wrong in, in the right direction in, in 2023 um, but it's much harder to assess simply because it is not the usual traditional behavior of, of, of macroeconomic patterns we are completely dependent on where gas prices are going to be in six months time and you know, we've been disappointed before but on the basis of what we know right now on the basis of forward gas prices, for instance, we should see deceleration inflation in 23 as well in Europe. So, Gilles, just to sort of put that all together, are you basically saying you're willing to push against the stagflation case in the United States, but that Europe looks much more likely to be mired in stagflationary types of environments for a longer period of time? Yeah, for me, for me, a key difference between the U.S. and, and Europe is that to some extent, uh, um, the, the U.S., especially the Fed, is to a large extent in control of the situation. If, if the economy tanks in 2023 uh, and normally you know, inflation goes down you know, more more harshly than what the market was is currently expecting, then you know the Fed can actually slow down its pace of tightening, can even cut rates. So there's an, a, a measure of control, if you want, on the uh, on the state of the economy in, in, in the US. In Europe, we don't have that level of, of, of control because it is it is not in our hands and uh, for all the activism of, of, of the ECB the fact that it's talking about a lot that it's, it's acting it is normalizing its its monetary policy truth is and they've acknowledged it themselves they have very very little impact and they know it on uh, on inflation in, in 23 in, in, in Europe so yes on the basis of the balance of risks uh, we have more downside risks in Europe than in the US I think or to to be more precise, we have less capacity in Europe to get us out of uh, uh, a recession in, in, in 23. And that, I think, should remain reflected in, in our exchange rate. And for now, we have this sort of knee-jerk reaction to this uh, loan October inflation print in the US. I hope it continues, but we've had accidents before. But yeah. fundamentally, the problem is that you know, Europe doesn't look as, 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 as in control. It just makes me wonder when you're doing your year ahead outlook, if you basically have a meteorologist there, several of them showing you satellite pictures of what the weather is going to be like and what the trends are of El Nino or La Nina um, in in just in general to get a better sense. Gilles, you're saying that there isn't much that Europe can do. Is there anything that you are looking for, maybe not this year, but next year to determine whether they've gotten, the con gotten a little bit more control over the energy situation so that they're not just susceptible to the next LNG import? There's one, one, well, LNG imports is still the key in the sense that what we need to see in 23 
is the emergence of LNG importing capacity in Germany. Now, as you know, at the moment, you have LNG importing capacity in Italy, in France, in Belgium, etc., etc. You don't have it in Germany. They have a project to have a terminal uh, coming out in 2023. That needs to come out. We need to have this uh, LNG capacity in Germany to make sure that 23-24 is not going to be a replication of uh, what we're going uh, through through right now. So that would be definitely uh, positive. Another point which is probably less uh, uh, discussed is is um, uh, the capacity of the French uh, nuclear power uh, uh, generation uh, to really reach its, its potential in 23. Uh, that adds actually to the difficulties we have right now. As you know, you've got lots of nuclear power uh, stations in, in France which uh, have not uh, restarted. There's a plan to restart them gradually over the next, over the next few months. Uh, we need to see uh, that plan uh, uh, complete uh, by the end of, of this winter again to give us a measure of comfort in terms of, of electricity generation for, for, for 23. Uh, so that, that is less discussed but I think it's almost as important. Joe, wonderful to hear from you, sir. A bit of a reality check around the European story from Joe Mowak there of AXA Investment Managers. Joining us now is Linda Dussel, Senior Equity Strategist of Federated Hermes. Linda, I'll make it simple for you. Do you want to chase this rally? Uh, no, we at Federated Hermes do not want to chase this rally. This was a predictable rally, and we've been bouncing up and down all year long, pretty much in two-month increments, if you remember the June low, and then bounced up for a couple of months later, and then bounced right back down. And what we saw last week was that great day, I think it was on Thursday, we saw money flowing into tech stocks. Um, it, it to an outsized degree. So there's still a lot of money out there sloshing about, looking for where to invest. And you know, I travel all the time in my job. The most common question in the last three months was, what should I buy now? There is not the fear out there. So as much as 100% of people thought we're going to have a recession next year, maybe 100% people thought you need to buy into this rally. We've seen a lot of cuts from big tech. Meta, 11,000. Twitter, potentially half the workforce is set to go. The reports from the New York Times on Amazon yesterday, the week before it was the journal talking about a cost-cutting review under Andy Jassy. Does that bring you confidence, Linda, about these tech companies making the required cuts, removing the excess that they've built up? Well, yes. And of course, that's where the big increases were during the COVID shutdown were in the tech stocks. Hundreds of thousands, I think, uh, added onto Amazon. So, of course, they're going to cut. What we're watching is, is this the beginning of, you know, is this the tip of an iceberg in terms of layoffs? And of course, we think layoffs will increase next year. But what I expect will happen in 2023 is really a slow motion realization that we are going into a recession and that earnings are going to come off. And as much as we're talking in these last couple of weeks about lots of issues. There's not a lot of talk in, in our view at Federated Hermes about what is likely to happen to earnings estimates coming down into next year. But it will be slow motion because of all the cash out there. Linda, which sector of the market right now do you think is most overpriced based on the expectation that you put out there of downgrades to earning estimates next year? Uh, well, you know, the most expensive sector out there right now, if you look at uh, forward PEs versus like 30 years of history, is actually utilities because people just poured into utilities. And that's not because of people getting earnings wrong. It's because people ma massively going into the defensive sector. Indeed, what happened in these last few months was that the tech sector, which was the most expensive sector all year long, and pockets still are very expensive, other pockets not as much, was really brought down to earth a lot. So people feel comfortable 
comfortable in getting back in. So it's really a, a motion moving all back and forth right now. It's that one sector utilities that was really overbought that's coming back down now. But in general, those high quality dividend sectors are inexpensive versus history. And that's what we're focused at Federated Hermes. That's where you're focused in order to buy or in order to sell, Linda. Do you look at that area as accurately pricing in stagflation that other areas of the market perhaps are not? No, we're looking to buy. Okay. We're looking to buy the defensive sectors. We're looking for income. Cash is king. That's sort of an idea. Remembering to remain defa- defensive. In fact, when you go into recession, if we really think you're going into recession, cyclicals historically underperform the defensive by about 22% so far, only 7%. Earnings estimates only down 4% now from the peak in June for this entire market. And it's likely to go down, we think, 10% anyway. So we're, we're staying defensive here and we're selling what looks expensive into this rally and that is some tech for sure some tech but linda wonderful to hear from you it always is linda does all there a federated hermes nobody ever says make it complicated that is why nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward client ready resources from clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. But I head down to Washington, D.C. And just a warning going into this conversation, there's a lot of noise behind Andy Barr, the Republican from Kentucky and ranking member of the House Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations. Congressman, you and I were joking in the commercial break. It's the chaos of Washington. If the chaos of Washington (laughs) returns and that noise comes back, I'll let you go, sir, for sure. You made easy work of Kentucky's 6th Congressional District. Other Republicans struggled. Let's start there. Congressman, what went wrong with the party at these midterms? Well, I'm a I'm an optimist. I'm a a bit of a have a positive attitude. And so uh, however you cut it, Uh, And no doubt uh, Republicans are disappointed that the red wave did not materialize. But however you cut it, we made material gains in the House, and it looks like we're on track to taking the majority. In fact, some media outlets have already said we have, in fact, taken the majority. That was the principal objective, uh, even not uh, taking the Senate. Uh, What does that mean? It it means that they don't give out small, medium, and large-sized gavels. They just give out gavels. And... Uh, by retiring Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House, by having a new speaker, by having Republicans in charge of the gavels and the committees, it means we set the agenda. We have the ability to exercise oversight. We can put the brakes 
on the overspending and the threat of higher taxes, and yeah. we can exercise oversight over the regulatory assault on the free enterprise system. That's what the market should take uh, encouragement by in this election, is that we do have divided government, even though it's going to be a thin majority. So who would you like to see be the leader of the House of Representatives? Is it Kevin McCarthy? Who would you like to see to be the leader of the Republican Party? Is it former President Trump? No, it's Kevin McCarthy. Kevin, Kevin McCarthy. There, no one has done more for the House Republican Conference than Kevin McCarthy in terms of raising money, helping recruit candidates, uh, helping members represent their districts, uh, moving their legislation, assisting them, understanding their districts. So uh, Kevin McCarthy is going to have the votes not only to win his leadership election today, uh, but also become speaker. Now, look, there's competition. And the great thing about the Republican Party, both in these leadership elections in Congress and I anticipate in 2024, is there will be competition. There is no coronation in the Republican Party. That's the great thing about the Republican Party. We are not an authoritarian party. We are a libertarian party. We believe in free enterprise. We believe in competition okay. and choice. We don't believe in top down. We believe in bottom up. And so competition, iron sharpens iron. That's what makes us better leaders. How important is it to you, Congressman, for President Trump, former President Trump, not to run again in order for Republicans to kind of reclaim that mantle, given the turnout, what recently was the vote in the previous two elections? Well, I think we have to do some soul searching in our party and recognize that certain candidates for Congress underperformed other candidates. And what do those candidates look like? What were the features of those candidates? Uh, again, we're the party of competition and choice. So I, I, I'm not one to say uh, this uh, candidate should run or the former president shouldn't run. Um, I think there will be a robust competition. I do not believe there will be a coordination for the, the nomination. But I want to say this, too, about 2024. We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. The, the crises that are facing us right now have not changed since Tuesday. Inflation continues to be a massive 40-year problem for our country. Uh, the crime problem is significant. That's why a, a lot of Republicans did well in places where you've got a, a crime problem. The border crisis is significant. The energy crisis, the attack on American energy independence, it continues to be a big problem. And the president's approval rating continues to be at 40 percent. So even while uh, the American people didn't give a mandate to Republicans, they certainly didn't give a mandate to the Democrats when they gave Republicans control of the House. So it's it's dissatisfaction all the way around. And it means that Republicans and Democrats alike need to do a better job responding to the problems facing the American people. Republicans in the majority are going to be laser focused on this inflation crisis. And I, will, I want to say this to your audience in particular. No amount of Federal Reserve tightening is going to solve this inflation crisis. There is a supply side problem as much as there is a demand side or excess demand issue in the economy. And we need to produce and supply more American-made energy in this country to fix the supply side. We need to take off the table the threat of higher taxes and overregulation, which impedes business investment, impedes the repairs that need to take place in the supply chain. If we don't do that, we are not going to get out of this inflation spiral, and you're going to continue to see aggressive tightening that will disrupt the financial markets. Congressman, you said it. 
we've got an approval rating for the president in the 40s. We've got inflation at a 40-year high. And still, this is the position that the Republican Party finds itself in. And most people think that speaks to the failure of this party not to secure a bigger majority in the House or any majority whatsoever in the Senate. You talked about soul-searching. So can you be more specific about what that actually means? What do you think? And I'll go back to the question we started the conversation with. What went wrong? What needs to change? What does that soul-searching actually involve? Well, look, again, I'm an optimist. I think to say when you take the majority, what went wrong, I think you have to give a little bit of credit to the candidates, the excellent candidates who did win and who did beat incumbent Democrats. And look at those candidates. What, what was the characteristics of those candidates? Those candidates were optimistic. They believed in America. They were patriotic. They believed in free enterprise as the solution, uh, not the problem. They believed, they recognized that the government and fiscal policies and, and policy errors are, are, are why we have this inflation crisis. And they have solutions and they offered solutions in the form of the commitment to America to stop the overspending, to produce American energy again, to fund, not defund the police, to make sure we have law and order in our country again and to secure our southern border. And to say, look, we are a nation of immigrants, but we're also a nation of laws. And I think the, the, the candidates that had that positive uh, message were the candidates that won, candidates that had a more divisive message um, uh, and, and were only about opposition as opposed to policy solutions, those candidates struggled. So I believe in a Republican Party that presents a positive message about free enterprise, freedom, liberty, limited government, and upward mobility. That's how we're going to win the majority for the year to, years to come. Hey, Congressman, we're going to have a longer conversation about your role on the House Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigation in the next couple of weeks, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. Andy Barr there, Republican from Kentucky. AMH joins us now from Bali with a special guest. Hey, Anne-Marie. Thanks so much, John. The fact that this guest is with me does sound like things are looking hopeful for the joint communicate leaders we're going to sign off for. I'm joined now by the president's deputy national security advisor, Mike Pyle. Mike, thanks so much for joining me. You're the representative at the table, what they call in G20 speak, the Sherpa. And the fact that you're here at A15 Bali night before the leaders sign off on it, it sounds like it's hopeful that all 20 leaders will sign this communique. How were you able to get Russia on board? So I don't want to get ahead of our leaders. Obviously, they will speak collectively uh, coming out of the summit. But I think we're constructive that uh, there's going to be a statement from the G20 that accomplishes what the president set out as his priorities coming in. You know, number one, uh, to rally the world to speak in strong uh, language around Russia's uh, war in Ukraine, uh, to condemn Russia, to condemn uh, the, the consequences of Russia's behavior uh, in terms of its stresses on the global economy, but then also to present to the world uh, an affirmative vision for what an action plan could look like to address those stresses, particularly on vulnerable countries in the emerging world. How crucial was Xi Jinping in China to getting this communique over the finish line? So I think, uh, I think you know, what I would say is, you know, President Biden and his vision was very essential to getting this communique over the vision line, finish line. Again, one, you know, coming in and, and working hard to uh, rally a, a broad 
stretch of the G20, I think what you'll see in the communique uh, when it's released is that most of the G20 came together to strongly condemn uh, Russia's war, uh, to strongly condemn uh, those actions and the consequences that's had for the global economy. And you've, you're also going to see reflected in that a lot of the priori priorities that the president's articulated, whether it's the need for reform at the multilateral development banks like the World Bank, mm -hmm. whether that's the need to stand up uh, an, an effort to uh, be more prepared uh, for future pandemics, uh, whether that's an issue like debt relief, where, uh, again, like what we saw in October, one country out of the 20 was isolated while the rest of the 19 mm -hmm. uh, stood up and said, this is something we need to do uh, to help vulnerable countries. I think you're going to see those priorities in the communique, and I think that's a reflection of U.S. leadership. We're hearing a growing chorus on the margins or out in the front about some actions the United States has taken. One, the Inflation Reduction Act, giving subsidies to American companies, but also the curbs on chips to China, where potentially a European company like ASML in the Netherlands might get caught in the crossfires between what the United States does not want to happen when selling to China. How have you been able to deal with your allies in these two critical issues that are going to help the U.S. domestically and is going to hurt them. So with respect to the IRA, I mean, I think the, the core point is we have a shared challenge globally around climate change. And we have heard from the rest of the world for years that the United States needs, needs to take major action to address that risk, to address uh, this uh, this problem that we all face. And this is historic action, action that has never been taken before in the United States at this scale. Uh, Macron called it unfriendly, though. Well, again, I would say with respect to what is the core global challenge that we face of climate change, this is historic action that will uh, further the U.S.'s achievement of its climate goals, and the U.S. achieving its climate goals is essential to the world achieving its climate goals. The other thing I would say is, you know, the investments that we're making in clean energy, in electric vehicles, you know, really are investments that you can't make enough of. And we invite other countries to similarly make investments in their own, uh, in their own uh, clean energy sector, in their own uh, secure battery supply chains. These are things that we think that we can do uh, in a way that uh, is going to serve everyone's interests. And the United States has taken a huge step forward uh, to do that uh, for our economy and for the rest of the world. The president obviously came into this meeting with all these leaders with a pretty much a big uh, boost in his step in the sense that the Democrats are able to maintain control of uh, the Senate, even though we still don't know what's going on with Georgia, and the red wave really was a red ripple. Do you think if that outcome was different, it would have changed the meetings and how the president was perceived here on the ground? Uh, so I'm the economics guy, not the politics guy, but, you know... But the world right now... Eco the economy and politics are everything when a country's dealing with sky-high inflation and the I, likes. I think that, I think that as I said before, um, U.S. leadership, the president's leadership was on full display. I think they see uh, a U.S. economy that uh, is resilient in the face of, of global challenges. They see uh, a, a president and an administration uh, that have delivered on their promises in terms of reinvesting uh, in the U.S. economy, uh, in terms of taking historic action on climate change. And I think as a result of that leadership, a lot of the things that I described as our agenda coming into this, the president's agenda coming in, into this, you know, really met with a lot of open ears and open arms from uh, most of the G20. Mike Pyle, thank you so much for joining me and Bloomberg Television.
Uh, John, Lisa, that was President Biden's Deputy National Security Advisor, Mike Pyle. In the G20 speak, he is the Sherpa. He represents the U.S. interests at the table as they go through every single issue that they are going to sign off on this communique. And at the moment, it does look they are going to get all or at least the majority of leaders on board. It makes great work not just this morning, but over the last couple of days as well. I'm Marie Hordern there. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomer. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.